It's the Pete Callender Show. With more than 20 years as a reporter and radio host in North Carolina, Pete Callender is helping solve the world's problems one podcast at a time. Because he's a giver. And now, here's Pete. What is going on? Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for listening. I do appreciate it. And uh, appreciate patrons like Lou, Grant, Ashley, Sarah and Barry, Patrick, Shan, Joseph, Dan, Brian, and John. Thanks so much for the support. I uh, could not do the podcast without you guys. Uh, they became patrons. You can as well. Just go to the PeteCallenderShow.com. Uh, while you're there, click subscribe, and you get the free podcast every day right to your smartphone or tablet. Um, and you can also check out the link that's at the top there to become a patron to get exclusive content uh, as well as merchandise. Exclusive content like, for example... You get some audio uh, in advance of uh, other folks, but also the live streams, which are really popular uh, on Thursday night, 7 o'clock, we do our live stream. So if you want to be a part of that, head on over to the Patreon page. You can get there by going to com. If you are coming to Western North Carolina, be on the lookout, by the way. Uh, the State Highway Patrol is uh, looking to crack down on their lazy troopers. That is a direct quote. Their words, Captain Neil Denman's words, actually to his own uh, troopers, not mine. I am not calling them lazy. I think it's totally fine if they do not want to write speeding tickets. Not that I do a lot of driving nowadays <laughs> because of COVID. I, I really feel like my driving skills uh, have deteriorated. And the last time I was out on the road seems to indicate uh, that is the case for a great many other people as well. Yeah. Um, so if you're coming to Western North Carolina, be aware they're going to be writing tickets. I'll give you details on that from a story that Nick Oxner did at WBTV the other day. But first, I want to tell you about Growers Hemp. I take CBD oil. I take a couple drops before I go to bed. And what I have found is since I started taking these drops, uh, probably, I guess, uh, I don't know, eight, nine months ago. And when I remember to take them, <laughs> that's usually the biggest problem is uh, I forget to take them. Uh, but when I take them, I sleep more deeply. Like I go down and I stay asleep. And my whole life, that was not always the case. I would be the kind of person that would wake up in the middle of the night, you know, three, four, five times. Uh, and then it would take, you know, 15, 20, 30 minutes for me to fall back asleep. Uh, when I take the CBD drops, that doesn't happen for me. Uh, so go check them out at growershemp.com. Learn about the farmers. These are family farms in North Carolina that got together and said, why don't we control this process, this new commodity crop, this hemp plant that is now uh, allowed to be you know, manufactured into CBD oil in North Carolina. So why don't we do this rather than relying on some of these, you know, California companies that parachuted in and, you know, truth be told, they took advantage of a lot of farmers in North Carolina. So these farmers said, let's do it differently and let's reward the family farmers for participating. So that's the company they built, Growers Hemp. From seed to shelf, they control it all, which means you get a better quality product at a lower price. Go to growershemp.com and use the promo code PETE, my name, Pete, and you'll get 20% off. You can also pick it up uh, at the Broad River Hemp Company in Shelby. It's also at the Medical Pharmacy in Locust and the Durham Co-op. And so, and by the way, if you own a store and you want to get their product on your shelves, uh, go to growershemp.com. They would love to talk with you. As with all CBD products, here is the official disclaimer that I have to give you, according to GovCo. Um... 
that these statements that I have said have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Truth be told, the FDA probably doesn't even know I exist. The efficacy of these products, okay, they did not require me to say that last part, but the efficacy of these products has not been confirmed by FDA-approved research. These products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease, and nothing I have said is meant as a substitute for or alternative to information from your healthcare provider. So consult your healthcare professional about potential interactions or other possible complications before using any product whatsoever. Um, go to growershemp.com. Best place to go, the website. Use the promo code PETE. You'll get 20% off. From North Carolina farmers to your home, Growers Hemp is about the hemp and not the hype, like those Californians. Um, so the Highway Patrol, this is a story that WBTV did out of Charlotte, but this is the Western Division um, headed up. This is Troop G, headquartered in Asheville, covers most of the western part of the state. Uh, a commander with the North Carolina State Highway Patrol wants his troopers to write more speeding tickets. In an email sent at the start of the year, Captain Neil Denman emailed troopers that he oversees in Troop G to write more speeding tickets. Quote, as you can see by the numbers, most members are not putting forth any enforcement effort and district supervisors are not holding their feet to the fire, the email said. In the coming weeks, that is going to change. Statewide, <laughs> this was <laughs> this was a story, by the way, from about a week ago. Uh, statewide, the Highway Patrol wrote fewer tickets in 2020 than in previous years. How many fewer tickets? How many fewer? How fewer fewer? What's the difference in the number of tickets written? Glad you asked. 60,000, according to WBTV, 60,000 fewer tickets in 2020 than in previous years. And what does that mean? A significant drop in revenue for the state as well as the court system. Well, why would there be 60,000 fewer tickets being written? Hmm, what might it be? Could it be that there aren't as many people on the road? Like just the if you're going to do a comparison. So this is interesting because we don't have a proportional comparison. We can't say that there has been a percentage reduction in the number of vehicles on the road. Therefore, we should expect to see a similar reduction by percentage, a proportional reduction in the number of tickets written. All we get is the 60,000 number, right? So 60,000 tickets fewer. Well, what does that mean? Well, that's just a discrete number. That's a whole number, 60,000 fewer tickets, right? But if there's, you know, 2 million fewer trips being taken every day, then that would make some bit of sense. To me, it does at least. Fewer people driving around because everybody is on lockdown, right? We're being told to stay home, which means fewer opportunities for people to drive, fewer opportunities for people to drive poorly, and fewer opportunities for the highway patrol to bust you. Uh, so the lockdowns, uh, I think, are the the driving force, no pun intended, uh, behind the reduction. But also, just going to spitball here, I'm just wondering, maybe it had something to do also with all of the Black Lives Matter stuff going on in 2020. Maybe highway patrol troopers were a little... Uh, well, I don't want to say they were hesitant because I don't know that, but let's just, I'll put it this way. Maybe they were driving with the blinders on, you know? And and that is a, that's a, a, a phrase I have heard 
officers tell me that usually occurs at the end of their shift as they are heading back to <laughs> headquarters at the end of the shift. They're driving back and, you know, they'll see some activity, some driving behavior that might actually not be uh, entirely beneficial to others on the road. But the troopers, the officers, they have blinders on. Yeah, they're just they're they're staring straight ahead and they just didn't see what happened. And I suspect usually whenever if I get pulled over and I don't get a ticket, I assume it's because they were on their way (laughs) back to headquarters. They were at the end of the shift and they just didn't want to have to be bothered with it. And also, you know, I'm a polite person. I'm a nice guy. You know, I maybe I'll take this opportunity to tell people that when you get pulled over, do a couple things. Right. First thing you do, put the car in park. Well, sorry. First thing you do is find a safe place to pull over. So you're not putting the cop's life in danger. And then you pull the car over and you put the car in park and you turn the engine off, and you turn the interior light on, and you roll down all the windows. Unless, of course, like it's pouring rain, which if it's pouring rain, I'm surprised you got pulled over in the first place. You must have been driving really badly to get pulled over in the rain. Because if I'm a cop, I'm not pulling people over in the rain. Probably I'm working an accident scene. You know, that's usually what they spend their time doing (laughs) on traffic duty when uh, uh, when it's raining. Anyway, This is what the email says from Chief or sorry, Captain Neil Denman to the troopers. Uh, He says it is time that Troop G get uh, gets back to work and the lazy troopers start earning their pay. (laughs) What? I like I don't know. Maybe they're motivated differently than me. You say that to me and I'm I'm probably not going to write more tickets just in just to be contrarian. Like I said, I probably wouldn't be a good cop for that very reason. I wouldn't take these orders very well. In a statement, the Highway Patrol spokesman, First Sergeant Christopher Knox, said troopers have a responsibility to save lives through enforcement and education measures. Okay, well, are we saving lives with the with the speeding tickets being written? Or tickets in general? Is that what's happening? Is lives being saved? Because it seems to me like if you're writing 60,000 fewer tickets because there are fewer people on the road, seems to me like there would be a reduction in the uh, the number of deaths. And I don't know. It's not in the story. But what is in the story is that they saw an increase in the number of uh, impaired driving and speeding on state highways. They say they saw an increase in those uh, offenses. But, that, but they don't say whether there were more deaths. So I don't know how you see an increase in speeding on state highways while you're writing 60,000 fewer tickets. <laughs> how does that happen? It is not explained in the story. I, I don't know. And uh, the spokesman, Knox, First Sergeant Christopher Knox, says the purpose of the email was to motivate and energize those under his command, as well as refocus and readdress the agency's mission of preserving and protecting human life. Now, I would point out this kind of is proof that they do have quotas, right? (laughs) They do. I mean, it may not be a hard and fast kind of a quota, like you have to write a certain number of tickets, you know, and here's that certain number. But somebody's obviously keeping track of the count, and they are obviously telling the troopers to write more tickets when they are not hitting those numbers, which, I mean, it's kind of a perverse incentive, don't you think? Like if, yeah, I mean, if your funding is tied directly to the number of tickets you're writing, then you're going to start writing more tickets to to get the funding, right? It, it's, this, is the, this is the issue with like asset forfeiture as well. Um, 
there's a perverse incentive built into the program like that. So if you are in Western North Carolina, be aware on the roads, you may want to hit the exact speed limit. Don't even go because like the rule generally, not the rule, but it's like this gentleman's agreement, if you will, that it's, you know, nine, you're fine, 10, you're mine. So nine over the speed limit, eight or nine miles over the speed limit, you're okay. But if you go 10 and above, then I'm going to get you for speeding. Like that's generally been the the credo, but uh, I don't know if that applies anymore. So just a heads up. <laughs> uh, what else? Oh, here's a heads up. If you are thinking about buying a home in Western North Carolina, then you need to call Rowena Patton. This is actually who Christy and I are using uh, to buy our house. You should as well. Uh, she outsells 99% of all the realtors in the state uh, of North Carolina. She is also the official Homes for Heroes realtor. So if you're a state trooper, for example, or any other law enforcement officer, uh, if you are a firefighter, if you are a healthcare professional, an educator, or a member of the military, so veterans, active duty, retirees, then uh, you can uh, be part of the Homes for Heroes program, which uh, gives you 25% back from the realtor commissions. And Rowena is the only Homes for Heroes agent in Asheville. So, Give her a call, 333-4483. Her website is mountainhomehunt.com. Buying or selling, if you're buying, she has homes in all price points. If you are selling, she already has buyers lined up. So give her a call. Tell her you heard it here on the show, 333-4483, mountainhomehunt.com, and start packing. All right, so North Carolina now has a very limited supply of COVID-19 vaccines coming to the state today. This is according to WITN television. The federal government is sending a lot less than they normally do, according to North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services Secretary Dr. Mandy Cohen. Now, you may see several of these stories in various forms today, probably yesterday, tomorrow you will as well. I have, I've read a lot of them. I've, I've listened to multiple uh, news conferences. There's another one today. And I hope to get an answer to this question because I don't have it. But I will tell you the question, which is why? Why? Why do we have so many fewer vaccine doses from the federal government coming to this state this week versus last week? Dr. Cohen says every county is going to get vaccines. And they've, they've been celebrating. She's making a big point about how they... Uh, they have they have used up, sorry, 95 percent of the first doses. So remember, all the, the two vaccines that North Carolina is getting from the federal government, which bought the vaccines and is distributing them based on population uh, and so of the state. So uh, there are two different vaccines, but each of them require a first shot and then a second shot sometime later, like two, three weeks later. So the first doses have all been going out. And uh, North Carolina, according to Cohen, gave out 95% of the first doses, and she expects that number to have hit 100%, but she was doing this press conference before the end of the day. And so this is important because the feds have told the states, you guys, we're not going to give you more vaccines than you are able to administer. What they don't want to have happen is to send out all of these vaccines to states who then have a hard time administering the vaccines. And so they sit in freezers and they just start piling up and they're not going out to the public. Right. So the feds. So the way to stop that from happening, the feds have incentivized the states to get vaccines in as many arms as possible by tying the re up to their ability to administer all of the previous week's dosages. 
Make sense? Which is weird because it does this does kind of sound like a plan, right? I know. It sounds it sounds like there's some sort of a plan that was developed around the administration of the vaccines, which I was told by CNN this week that there was no such plan, which of course there was. I've been and this is it's so comical to watch like the Democrats be screaming about the big lie that the you know, the big lie. And they're calling it the big lie because this is the term that was used by, uh, you know, the Nazi propagandist Goebbels, uh, the big lie. And you tell this big lie and you get everybody to believe it. And so the left, the Democrats were using this moniker to smear all of the Trump supporters as Nazis, basically, when they bought into the big lie that the election was stolen. Okay, so uh, I am now framing this lie as they're the big lie because they're trying to convince everybody through their allies in the media at CNN that has been promoting this, quote, fake news, this the big lie, um, that the Trump administration had no plan and that the Biden administration had to walk in and had to, quote, start from scratch was the term that this unnamed source used, which is a lie. It's not true. There was a plan. I've actually read it. It's on the website. You can actually go and read. The, there's like three different documents. They're all like, you know, 10 to 40 pages long and you can read through them and they explain what the goals are, how to go about doing it. So the idea is we don't want states to stockpile these vaccines. So uh, we're going to make sure that when as these things are produced and they are shipped, that they get used immediately. Speed is the priority. Speed is the priority. We want as many people to get the vaccines as possible. Why? Herd immunity, which the left was poo-pooing and dismissing as some crackpot conspiracy theory, which, of course, it is not. Uh, it is actually uh, conventional wisdom at this point that the more people you vaccinate against any kind of a virus, then you, uh, you build up a herd immunity and it, the, the virus uh, gets minimized, if not eliminated. So, this was, you know, poo-pooed and dismissed uh, when Trump was president. But now it's something we're all going to work for. You know, this is where we have to get. And by the way, I've been consistent on this. We need to get to herd immunity, either with people getting sick and getting over it or the vaccine getting administered as rapidly as possible, particularly among the most vulnerable people who are most likely to die. And that would be the old folks, old folks. Number one. People above the age of 65, then people above the age of 50, people with comorbidities, right? But this whole time, North Carolina's leaders have been trying to make sure that we do it in an equitable fashion. And and they and they built this like really complex, convoluted, multi-tiered subgroup, sub-sub-subgrouping kind of a system. And it was just way too confusing. And uh, and, and, and I suspect that was why we ended up not being able to administer the doses. But I don't know the answer to the question of why the federal government is sending less dose, fewer doses, uh, doses than they normally do. Why? What happened? Did we have because Mandy Cohen says we had a backlog of the doses. Why was that? Because the convoluted distribution plan that you guys were using you were prioritizing people poorly, uh, and so that created a backlog. Is that what happened? Is this a problem at the at the local level at the at the point of of jab? I would say point of sale, but there's no sale going on here, right? So at the at the point where the vaccine is being administered, is that where there was some slowdown, some breakdown, and then that created this backlog? 
What what prompted it? She never does say. I, I've not heard an answer. And this story at WITN does not give us an answer either. Maybe a journalist will ask this question at some point of the governor. I kid. Dr. Cohen said 800,000 doses have been given out so far in the state and just 260,000 in the past week alone. But the shipments that are on their way are only going to contain about 120,000 doses. President Joe Biden, the story concludes by saying the president is looking to give out 150 million doses of the vaccine in the next 100 days, which is about 1.5 million a day. But right now, the manufacturers have been consistently shipping 4.3 million doses a week. So Biden says, I'm going to give out 1.5 million a day, but they're only manufacturing 4.3 million a week. I think that might be a problem. The Biden administration announced that US is, the U.S. is purchasing an additional 200 million doses that will be available in the summer. In the summer. Is this the point where I blame the president for all of the deaths from COVID in the meantime? Is that how this is done? Right. If the, yeah, if the promise is for 1.5 million a day, why are we getting fewer now? What, why? It seems like this has been a ramping down. Why has there been a decrease? I don't know. Like, and I, I feel the need to keep pointing this out. I'm not asking this in a rhetorical fashion. I'm, I'm sincerely asking. I do not know the answer why we had so many and now we have so few. Maybe somebody will ask. Um, here's something that you should ask yourself. Why haven't you been to uh, Old Grouch's military surplus yet? I saw... Tim posted yesterday, he just got a big shipment of Hungarian military body armor. These are uh, in limited quantities. These are not on the website, which is oldgrouch.com, by the way. Uh, So if you want to see this stuff, you got to go to the shop. Old Grouch's Military Surplus. It's on Main Street in downtown Clyde. You can also give them a call. The shop is open Monday through Saturday across the street from the anti-aircraft gun. You can follow them on Facebook and MeWe, and you can get questions that way, but it's not going to be a sale that he does uh, online, okay, because he's responsible. He also has first aid kits, ammo cans, gun accessories, backpacks, cold weather gear, all of your needs when it comes to military surplus, can be met at Old Grouch's Military Surplus, uh, oldgrouch.com. And again, tell them you heard it here on the show. Of course, if you're asking about the uh, the Hungarian military body armor, then he's going to know you heard it here on the show. <laughs> uh, so they had a bigger week last week because they got behind, says the health secretary. They got behind. How did they get behind? Why are we getting fewer doses? North Carolina is now going to be getting 120,000 first doses per week. That's our number, 120. Now, now they're asking for more. They keep saying that they're going to go, you know, they're asking the feds for more. Uh, they're going to reserve out of the 120, they're going to reserve 84,000 to local vaccine providers. And they say that's going to be a baseline amount. And that's going to be guaranteed over the next three weeks. So they can plan staffing. They can plan appointments. They can do all of that stuff. Um, but here's the thing. If you are at that local level, you have to get those doses administered within the week and you got to log the data into the system. So then they, so the state can then prove to the feds that we administered all of the vaccines. Cause if we don't administer all the vaccines, the feds are going to dial back the allotments. That's the deal. They're not going to let us sit on them. So uh, we have to show that we can get them all out the door, get them into people's arms, and we want more. 
because we keep saying like she keeps saying like the state keeps telling the feds we want more and the biden administration is looking at which states can handle more so mandy cohen held two briefings yesterday one was for lawmakers at the federal and state levels and then the other was for the media uh i monitored both i monitored both don't ask me how it's that's not important it's not important um but i monitored both i've pulled one uh set of audio clips here it's just a well it's not a q a because the lawmakers so think about this you have congress members asking questions of the department of health and human services secretary mandy cohen but they're not allowed to do it in person they had to submit them via email so you're going to hear a guy reading the emailed questions to cohen and then this gives her the opportunity to not answer the question which she does she does not answer a question that came from congressman dr greg murphy and it had to do with this focus on equity equity so what they're what they're realizing and you're going to hear it in the first question from congressman butterfield that there's a discrepancy there is a uh, there's a disparity i should say between recipients of the vaccine who are white versus black versus hispanic and i refuse to use that term latinx or latinx or whatever that it's it's a fake word they've made it up i'm not playing along with that social justice garbage uh it's they're hispanic they're latino that's what they call themselves they prefer like 99 percent of hispanics and latinos they use those terms they do not use the term latinx or latinx or whatever okay so um you got you got these different demographic groups and whites are getting vaccinated at higher rates. Why? We don't know. We assume, or I should say they assume, it's because of hesitancy to get the vaccine in these, quote, historically marginalized populations. There is a distrust of government, particularly among blacks and Hispanics for different reasons. Uh, one for blacks is, you know, the history in North Carolina, especially like of uh, uh, testing and eugenics and all of this other garbage that white, uh, uh, well, Jim Crow Democrats did to black people for decades in this state. So there is that. There is also uh, among the Hispanic community, a fear of going to a, you know, a facility where information is collected and then they may be targeted for deportation uh, or investigation by ICE and all of that. Right. These this is their rationale for why there is hesitancy to get vaccinated among these two populations okay so that's at the core of these two questions you're about to hear because oh by the way i forgot this is the slide she had a little slideshow that she presented for the lawmakers that could not you know directly participate um and so she says allocation process going forward she talks about the eighty-four thousand doses uh that are going to be going to the counties to give a baseline amount that they can expect but then point bullet point number three says providers must meet certain expectations including timely data entry and must vaccinate historically marginalized populations proportionate to population so let's say your county is uh 25 black 25 hispanic and 50 percent white they expect that says must vaccinate historically marginalized populations proportionate to population so the vaccines must be administered in a 25 25 50 fashion this is insanity to me 
you're going to get people killed. You are getting people killed, right? Because you've got people that, because like, what's going to happen? Is this a hard and fast rule? Uh, And they don't say, they don't tell us. What happens if, you know, you're running a clinic and you end up with 40% black and 20% Hispanic and 40% white? Do you have to stop administering vaccines to black people in order to bump up the Hispanic and white numbers? And you can use any permutation of those three groupings that you'd like. Are you supposed to start, uh, uh, you know, or, or yeah, should you start withholding vaccines from different racial groups in order to make your numbers balance out with the population at large? That's why I say this is kind of insane. Um, let's take a listen. Here's Cohen on the call with lawmakers. So I'm going to blend a couple of questions here. Congressman Butterfield's office um, asked, uh, what's the state plan to course correct for the fact that we're the so far, the vaccine has gone disproportionately to uh, people who are white and not people of color. And along with that, Representative Smith asked if we are considering using funds instead of clinics in areas with high minority populations, for example, churches. Yeah, great, great question. I would refer you both back to um, the, in the slide deck, just so you have this it for your, your reference, slides 9 and 10 talk specifically to that, that question, specifically 10, uh, in terms of putting... Uh, sites in places that are highly accessible. We are worried about um, equity as we go forward here. Um, within, with, within the guidance that we just gave to providers, one of our expectations is that they are vaccinating uh, in, in a way that represents the population that they, they serve. So that is an expectation in addition to speed. And then we gave them a number of ways to operationalize that that I've, I've mentioned in terms of both locations and transportation, um, off hours, um, giving, uh, you know, holding um, appointments specifically for, uh, for our historically marginalized populations. Um, I know, for example... All right, I'm going to stop for a second. You hear what you just said there? Holding appointments based on race that's that's one of their recommendations so you're going to create segregated (laughs) appointments they're they're segregating patients they're right they're paying attention to people's race when determining where you go in the line i like this whole area this this whole content like once you start once you start thinking in these kinds of terms I just I get very worried about where this goes, because things that you're doing in the name of, you know, progress and equity sound an awful lot like the things that were done in decades past in the name of racism and hatred. I'm sorry, but like I'm not the only one that sees these similarities. Um, The the large uh, Panther Stadium event that they are holding this weekend they gave first priority um, appointments to the church, the African-American and Hispanic churches in the Charlotte area. Um, so they were able to get priority for appointments. Then they gave priority to our local health department that serves our, our more of our historically marginalized population. So even those big events are trying to, to do that. I, I continue to hear great stories of partnerships with our community organizations to go to church locations to go to high schools in um, uh, lower wealth uh, communities to be access points. Um, I definitely think we need to do better. Our data shows that. Um, I think that's why we have to both um, uh, do this 
from it, we have to be sure we're doing the communication piece, right, addressing the hesitancy. But then also once folks have, have uh, you know, are ready to take their shot, that we have access points that, that are accessible to, to folks. All right. So is it possible that there are actual rational reasons why we're seeing a discrepancy? So for, for one, I'll just off the top of my head, I'm thinking, number one, is it possible that by targeting the most vulnerable population, notably old people, that most of the old people happen to be white for various reasons? And you can say, by the way, I'm, I'm not going to argue why that is, but you can say that it's because of, you know, institutional racism that, you know, white people live longer and uh, access to health care and, 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 you know, the, a lifetime of uh, better availability of resources and wealth and everything else. Like just set all of that aside for whatever reason it is. Is it possible that the reason why whites are outpacing other demographic groups is because they make up more of the elderly? Right. That seems to make sense to me. So does it does it benefit the society if you are and, and people with comorbidities and other vulnerable populations like that, uh, does it benefit them to be saying, well, oh, my gosh, look at all the white people getting doses. So we're going to have to, you know, puff up the numbers here with others, meaning you're going to push them ahead of others that that should have by your own priority list should have gotten them next. So you're actually doing the line cutting and you're doing it based on race. So I just throw that out there. One of the other things I thought was interesting is that now there's all this attention being paid and focus on uh, historically marginalized populations getting the vaccine. Yet when Senator Tom Tillis made a point uh, about uh, the covid virus spreading in the Hispanic community for whatever reasons, um, he was assailed as a racist. Of course, it was the election season, and that's what Democrats like to do during elections is call everybody. Well, it's not just elections. Who am I kidding? They call everybody racist all the time. So they called Senator Tillis a racist for saying this. Yet now we have the evidence, right, that for some reason, the Hispanic population, they're not getting vaccinated. They, they don't. Is it possible they don't see this as a threat? And, and they may be wrong on that, too, but I don't know why. But there are other questions that arise, like, for example, is it possible the reason why we saw uh, outbreaks in Latino communities was because uh, that they tend to live uh, in smaller settings with more people for uh, for various reasons? Right. And I'm not saying this stuff is like indictments or anything. But when you look at all of these other types of factors, right, just boiling it down to race, it's the lowest form of collectivism. It really is. And for, you know, for libertarian minded people like myself it's it's grotesque it, it it just it makes me cringe because it is collectivism whether it's employed you know for a good cause or not you're reducing people down to what really is i mean it's not even it, they, people have no control over these things it's it it's their race like to, to boil everything down to that and look at every look at people through this prism of only their race it's just completely myopic but what do i know you know i'm just a podcaster a podcaster who does know by the way that if you are looking uh to get the job done but you don't have the tool for that job then you go to general equipment rental i do know that i'm not a bright guy but i do know that general equipment rental they have the tools that you need big or small you go uh you go to their uh their shop their facility on reams creek road at merriman avenue it's at the intersection there um you go to the shop and you can uh not just find the tool that you need but but you can learn how to use it they're also your official licensed husqvarna and honda 
outdoor power equipment sales and service provider. As Christy and I are moving closer and closer to uh, get, you know, moving into our new home, they're getting ready to start building it. I'm now starting to think, what tools do I need? And that's the sh- <laughs> that's the first sign I knew that I was an adult was when I started <laughs> I started taking an active interest in power tools. Um, and so I'm thinking, I got to believe the blowers first, the leaf blower. Well, no, maybe the lawnmower. Got to get a lawnmower, got to get a leaf blower. Like, those are the must-haves. Then, yes, like hedge clippers, they're on the list. But I think the first, weed uh, weed whacker. Do people call it a weed whacker down here? Anyway, uh, so I'm, they've got all that stuff for sale, but they also have all of the tools for way bigger projects that you're not going to need the tool to, you know, you don't need it forever. Like, are you going to need a, a tile saw? Like, right, maybe you do. Maybe if you're doing a whole lot of tile work, you need a tile saw. But if you're only doing one project, you know, you're only doing one project. You can either try and find a neighbor, uh, borrow their tool. Hopefully you don't break it because you don't know what you're doing with it, right? And then you'd have to buy one for your neighbor. Or just go to General Equipment Rental. They'll tell you how to use it. Then you use it. You get the job done. You bring it back. General Equipment Rental in Weaverville, generalrents.com. Think outside your toolbox. All right. So the next question uh, in this briefing to lawmakers came from Congressman Greg Murphy, who happens to be a doctor. Take a listen to this. Uh, Congressman Murphy asked, what if different groups don't show up to get vaccinated? Would we be penalized if, say, African-Americans don't show up? I worked at Big Clinic yesterday, and I was very disappointed in the number of minorities that showed up. And Biden has done a tremendous job in trying to recruit them to come get vaccinated. So Vident is the, you know, the hospital system. Murphy works for that hospital system. He was helping to administer the doses at this clinic. And he's looking around and like, wow, there aren't a lot of minorities showing up. I'm disappointed now. But what happens to Vident, the the healthcare uh, system, the provider, the clinics, they don't have enough minorities show up. Like when you say in this slide that these clinics must vaccinate historically marginalized populations proportionate to population. What happens if people don't show up? Like you're doing the outreach, you're right, you're doing the communications piece. What happens if we don't meet the proportionate goals? Well, first, I would say we knew going into this that, that there is going to be greater hesitancy in our African-American community, Latinx, Hispanic um, communities. And so I think that is why we are putting so much of an emphasis on how do we address that hesitancy. Um, and so when it is their spot, they will take their shot uh, here in North Carolina. Um, and then we have to use our data to target our strategies. Um, I, I applaud Biden for, for the work they've been doing to get to um, communities um, and we need to keep keep that up. And um, I, I think so we have to address hesitancy, but we have to make sure we're, we're knocking down all the barriers we can. Transportation, location, trusted sites, off hours, um, uh, holding appointments, um, all of those kinds of things in combination, I think, are what we are learning um, is what we need to be effective. And I think uh, that that w- with our eye on that ball, that we will we will we will get there. Which, of course, doesn't answer the question, right? Dr. Murphy, Congressman Murphy, is asking what happens if we cannot meet those proportional goals? You say we must meet them. What happens if we do not? She doesn't say. So I I, I don't know what to make of that either. Maybe somebody will ask her. When someone tries to ask her, she they, she doesn't answer. This is This is one of the benefits. This is a feature, not a bug, of this format where... Cohen hosts all of these people calling in 
and uh, they have to submit questions in writing in an email, and then she gets to seem like she's fielding the questions, but only answering the ones that she really wants to answer that make her look good, that make the state look good. She's not answering questions that are difficult. And, and in this case, the lawmakers don't even get the ability to follow up. At least reporters get to follow up. But this is the kind of tightly managed process uh, format that this administration, Roy Cooper, has been using now for a year. And it has tons of downsides. This is one of them, is that just like with these lawmakers, reporters don't get the ability to be in person and to ask questions and to follow up and follow up and follow up and follow up in a way that is more open than on a phone line where your access to ask the question in the first place is being determined by one of the flacks for the person hosting the event, right? If a reporter has more than one follow-up, if I ask you, is the sky blue, and you dance around the answer and don't answer it, do I get a follow-up? Okay, so now I have a follow-up. I'm going to ask a follow-up. Could you please answer my question? And then you dance around and dance around and don't answer the question again. Now what am I, what am I to do? Because reporters don't get more than one follow-up opportunity. So at least in the briefings. But by the way, this came up a couple of weeks ago when Travis Fain, reporter for WRAL, and they are one of the anointed uh, news outlets, and Travis is one of the anointed reporters, he gets to ask questions of the governor when the governor participates in these briefings. He went on the morning show in Raleigh and Greensboro. Casey O'Day, the morning host, uh, asked him about this process. And listen to what Travis Fain says. Um, the way in which our own governor has handled the press conferences around COVID. There are publications and legitimate news outlets that haven't had a question since March, and those who have haven't spoken up about this. Do you think that's a problem? You know, some. I think there have been more questions from some of these people. You'd have to mention a specific one. I know the North State Carolina Journal Carolina Journal one. would be one. North State Journal oh, well, I, would be I, one. Yeah. I, North, North State Journal has gotten questions. I know that for sure, because every time it happens, I think it's interesting because it's run by a guy who used to work for, uh, I believe, Phil Berger. All right. So let me just stop for a second. First off, he doesn't answer the question either. Casey O'Day asks Travis, do you think that's a problem? Do you think it's a problem? And he's like, oh, I mean, I'm not so sure that this is really like he's he's attacking the very premise of the question. And when Casey O'Day gives him the example of Carolina Journal. They don't get to ask questions of the governor because it's a conservative publication uh, published by the John Locke Foundation, and uh, they, they don't get to ask questions. And so Travis doesn't want to attack them as not being a news organization, I guess, or something, even though the Carolina Journal does journalism. OK, um, meanwhile, he then attacks the North State Journal because it's, quote, run by a guy who used to work for Phil Berger, which this is the point uh, where I would note that W.R.A.L., Travis's company is owned by uh, Capital Broadcast Corporation, and their owner donates all sorts of money to left-wing causes and actually employs as their editorial writer Seth Efron, who happens to have been the communications person for two previous Democratic governors. So are, are we to say then that because somebody who worked for a lawmaker in the past now works for your company that now they're not allowed that that 
company is no longer allowed to ask questions, even though there are different people asking the questions. So this, he's just he's dismissing it out of hand because he takes this shot because, uh, oh, Phil Berger's guy uh, now works there, now runs the operation. OK, Jim Goodman runs yours. So you don't get questions now in a Republican administration. Is that how this game is played? This it's smarmy at the very least. It's an unnecessary shot. Also, it's not accurate. The North State Journal gets to ask questions when Cooper isn't there. So Travis is incorrect, okay? I have been monitoring every single press briefing that Cooper has done for a year, and the North State Journal does not get to ask questions of the governor. They do get to ask questions of Mandy Cohen when the governor's not there. So Travis is thinking of those. But what he just did there was he denies the premise of the question that Casey O'Day is asking. But then my favorite part. Yes. Um, they, I mean, it, it, it's press access to the governor right now is, is an issue. Although I kind of like the call-in system they've got because there are a number of far-flung publications that get questions that wouldn't otherwise. That is a talking point from the governor. That is a talking point. What he just gave you is the defense of their format that the governor has offered. He kind of likes it because the governor said this thing and it's true. And so I kind of like it. So you like it. Okay. So you have paid some thought to the benefit here of this format. I take it, right? I mean, if he's saying I kind of like it because it gives some of these outlets that are around the state, it gives them access to ask questions too. And look, that is a benefit. But this is important to point out here that he has paid some attention to it, unless, of course, he's just regurgitating a talking point from the governor. But um, let's just assume that he's done some thinking about this format, and that's how he arrived at this opinion. Take a listen to this. Um, so while this is an issue, it's not one that is top of mind for me, <laughs> and, and particularly because of the way Twitter works and kind of the media ec- ecosystem. I, I don't think... I'm able to see questions they might have asked or would have asked and think, well, I think that's a good question. I'll ask it as well. Ah. That's certainly an imperfect system, uh, but it just it is not a top of mind problem for me right now. It's not a top of mind problem for him right now. So he doesn't think about it, but he did think about it when he said, oh, this is really cool because it gets all these other outlets involved from around the state. So he's thought about it enough to say that, but not enough to wonder, huh, I wonder if some are getting shut out. He hasn't he hasn't thought about that part of it, but it's not a big problem for him because he has access oh but i look at you know twitter and i see questions that other people are asking and so i will then you know think oh that's a good question see travis likes his role as the gatekeeper of what is and isn't a legitimate question also a question you should be asking yourself right now is why haven't i bought a bed for mattress man at this point really after listening to pete talk about mattress man i mean like when pete talks about these mattresses like i almost fall asleep like that's how that's how comfortable they sound okay so mattress man (laughs) they are very comfortable christy and i bought our mattress from mattress man uh, about uh eight or nine years ago we love it it is a memory foam king size memory foam and if you've never had a king size mattress you, you this is a great time right now mattress man has their split king mattress blowout free adjustable bases with the purchase of select mattresses uh and so you get a two-piece king mattress is part of this split king so you can customize the bed one side soft one side firm uh head up feet up either side both sides however you want if you can't agree or can't figure out a compromise on you know a firmness of the mattress a sleeping position with your significant other then you don't have to stop by mattress man stores you'll save a bunch of money and maybe even 
save your marriage. Okay, I may be exaggerating that a little bit, but it, it can't it can't do anything but help, right? 14-inch hybrid queen mattresses, also for $578, your choice of firmness. Take advantage of the triple zero deal, zero down, zero APR for 24 months, and zero payments for 90 days. Go to mattressmanstores.com, experience the difference at Mattress Man. They have a 120-day comfort guarantee, they have a five-star local delivery service, and they ship nationwide mattressmanstores.com. Buy local and sleep better. Meanwhile, the North Carolina General Assembly long session convenes today. They will be doing a number of things, including the big one is the budget. This is the the, the biennium, the two-year budget they will be doing. Uh, obviously, education spending is going to be a big deal there. They're also going to be doing redistricting, the drawing of the maps for Congress and the state legislative races. They're going to be doing a COVID relief uh, bill of some kind, um, among other things. This is uh, this is where a lot of legislating gets done because the election was just held. And so this is the first year of the two-year cycle. Um, News and Observer had a, a preview of the session. Uh, they talked about how the new Republican superintendent for public instruction, Catherine Truitt, and the Democratic majority on the State Board of Education say uh, they're in unity, in a show of unity. They say that they need more resources uh, to help overcome learning challenges. The board has clashed repeatedly with Truett's predecessor, the Republican superintendent, Mark Johnson. The state board is working on its budget proposal now. Uh, Chairman Eric Davis said that with so many education needs, the board needs to focus on those that can have the most impact. Quote, an excellent teacher in every classroom supported by a strong principal and superintendent leadership. Everything else builds off of that. Which actually, I would say there's a first step, which is to open the schools. Opening the schools. Yeah, you can't. You can't build off of the teachers if you have no classrooms, okay? And the longer you guys stay in remote uh, posture like you are, uh, the more parents are going to be taking their kids out. Open the schools up. Figure it out. And I know I'm asking this of people who still can't figure out how to run an in-person press conference, but you guys need to really seriously figure this out. Kids are being irreparably harmed. Our society is being irreparably harmed. If you're not going to open the schools, then damn it, give vouchers out so parents can get their kids into school settings that benefit their kids. This is, by the way, School Choice Week. Happy School Choice Week. Medicaid expansion and teacher raises also probably going to be uh, topics as well, because North Carolina's Governor Roy Cooper has made Medicaid expansion the answer for everything that ails us. Uh, if there's any kind of a problem, he says, you know, Medicaid expansion would probably solve that problem. And remember, he believes in this so much that he has vetoed budgets. He vetoed teacher pay raises because of Medicaid expansion. He was trying to hold teacher pay hostage to Medicaid expansion and Republicans in the legislature weren't having any of it. And so they refused to go along. He uh, Governor Cooper vetoed the budgets and the Republican legislature did not have enough votes to override the veto. And so there was no budget and there were no pay raises. We just went to last year's budget. Um, this is from the News and Observer story. Uh, as the 2019 budget fight dragged into fall of 2019, Cooper and Republican leaders never agreed on an amount. Um, 
After COVID hit, lawmakers then passed a bill giving teachers a one-time bonus and the step pay raises, um, and Cooper signed that into law. Those bonuses did get distributed, but when the lawmakers previously tried to send him just a teacher pay raise bill, he vetoed that. So we'll see if he tries to hold uh, teacher pay hostage again. Another item that a lot of people have been hoping the legislature takes up is the Emergency Management Act. And uh, all of the powers that the governor has right now uh, that he's exercising in COVID response, uh, they were granted to him under this North Carolina Emergency Management Act and their interpretation of this act. And there are a lot of people now saying, look, this was never designed for this kind of a long term power grab that Cooper has been engaged in. And so the, the, the language around this law needs to be tightened in order to constrain a runaway executive. This is too much power for one person to have. I don't care who it is. One governor in North Carolina, one person should not be able to make these kinds of decisions that affect so many people. We have in this state a council of state. These are the all of the statewide elected offices, attorney general, lieutenant governor, treasurer, agriculture commissioner, right? All of these executive level positions, they're all elected statewide. And the North Carolina Emergency Management Act uh, should be amended, should be changed to force the governor to get their approval. If there's an emergency happening and it's like, got to go, got to move on it right now, got to respond right now, then it makes sense to give the governor a freer hand you know, to operate in those circumstances. But once the immediacy of the crisis has passed and now you're into sort of a, a long-term response, there isn't any legitimate reason why one person should still be making all of these decisions in secret, alone, and dictating them to the rest of the population. That's not what the initial framers had in mind. There's a piece by Donald Bryson at uh, the Carolina Journal. I've got it linked up. You should read it. It's called Two Critical Reforms to the Emergency Management Act. And this is one of them is to um, to restrain the executive by forcing him to go to the Council of State, which a lot of people say is already actually in the law, but Cooper is ignoring it. So that's one suggested fix. The other that I have seen is to uh, put a time limit on these types of emergency powers so they don't last in perpetuity. That's a wrap for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. I appreciate it. Remember, subscribe to the podcast and we'll talk with you later. Don't break anything while I'm gone. 